Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, we'll hear another true life story of living in the Sonoran Desert and remembering a valley designer and fashion icon. But first, 2023 was a big year politics-wise in Arizona. We started the year wondering how divided government would work as Democrat Katie Hobbs was sworn in as governor and worked with the legislature in which Republicans held a one-seat majority in each chamber. The legislative session was the longest in state history, and Governor Hobbs set a new veto record. There are also a number of competitive federal races brewing, and Arizona seems likely to continue to be at or near the center of the political universe in 2024. On this last Friday of the year, our Friday newscap is going to take a look back at some of the biggest political stories of 2023 and look ahead to what the new year may have in store. To do that, I was joined earlier in studio by Chuck Coughlin with High Ground and Stacey Pearson of Lumen Strategies. And we started with Governor Hobbs and how she did in her first year in that office. We'll hear from Chuck Coughlin first. Like every other governor does in their first year in office, it's pretty disastrous. I mean, because you just don't know. I mean, I, I can go back through almost, you know, from Fife to uh, through Jan, through Napolitano's first year. I mean, there's so much for a new governor to figure out how to operate the place, how to execute on policy, what I need to do, what relationships are important. Um, you know, and we saw at the end of the last session, you know, she she put Chad in as her Chad Campbell. Yeah, Chad yeah. Campbell is her new chief of staff, which I thought was a brilliant idea. Because he had a sense of the legislative process having been a former legislator. Allie, her previous chief of staff, didn't have the benefit of that. And how critical it is to understand the relationships that a governor needs to maintain in order to govern. You know, 16, 31, and 1 is the rule. Um, They're one seat short in both chambers. So how do I create a consensus amongst my minority caucus reaching out to them and developing those relationships. So it was a learning, like it's been with every other governor. It's, I, I, I said to my, my team at High Ground, I said, well, it's going to be a carnival for a year. And it was, and she did okay. I mean, she, she managed well. Ultimately, you know, the speaker came up with the budget plan, which was essentially hand out $2 billion to buy votes. Yeah, everybody gets yeah, some, everybody got some money to do something, yeah. But we're not there today. But right. so she did fine and she's made some changes, which I think give her great promise for being able to execute coming down the line here. Well, Stacey, what do you think? I mean, Chuck mentioned Chad Campbell, somebody with whom you used to work. Um, would you how would you describe Governor Hobbs uh, initial ter- uh, year in office? So to Chuck's point, it's difficult to staff up, especially given the fact that a Democrat took the administration for the first time in Long time. Yeah, in, in, in <laughs> what, very long time. 20 plus years. Yeah. Um, so finding folks willing to move to Arizona or willing to step up in that role, especially given how contested the election was, it wasn't the easiest task. So certainly she's got her sea legs under her. We She passed a bipartisan budget mm-hmm. that you, you credit the speaker. I credit Oprah. I mean, they were just giving away. You get a million dollars. <laughs> you get a car. You get a car. You get a car. 
Um, and, you know, certainly in retrospect, that wasn't the brightest idea. Yeah, it's kind um, of left the state in a bit of a financial problem. Yes, but. most certainly. And she has a number of steaming dumpster fires uh, that were left by the previous administration. ESAs without any guardrails are an absolute disaster. Um, looking at just the consistent underfunding of state agencies uh, that made them re- remarkably ineffective or inefficient, understaffed from DCS to you know, DCS, DHS, corrections, and getting a hold of corrections, water. 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 Bushatsky was told yeah. not to publish things. Exactly. Then he published in the director yeah. of right. the Department yeah. of Water Resources. The, yeah. Department of Water Resources. So the biggest success I think the governor um, can put on her ledger is shaking off the attack that Carrie Lake's campaign used against mm-hmm. her that she was weak. Mm-hmm. And she certainly showed that she's not. <laughs> she is transparent even mm-hmm. when it's unpleasant. Uh, when it comes to water is, mm-hmm. was the great ex- great example. Um, when it comes to some of the other deficiencies in state government, she's addressing those are going to be expensive to fix. Corrections in particular is under court mandate to fix how it handles health care. And that's also going to be very expensive. Yeah. And, and then she's, on, you know, she's not afraid to veto a lot of really <laughs> idiotic ideas coming from the Tinfoil Hat Caucus. Well, so let's talk about that because Governor Hobbs set the record for the number of vetoes. And it wasn't a particularly closed record. Like there wasn't a lot of doubt that she was going to do it once the session got started. Chuck, does that say anything? I mean, she got a lot of criticism from Republicans about, you know, you just you're the governor of no, you're the queen of no, as opposed to being for stuff. But like, was she able to use that to to help her in some way? Yeah, the cultural conservative stuff that she ended up was never on her radar screen. It was a product of the one-seat majority, Republican uh, majority, which is, you know, under the quote-unquote Hastert rule, which is a majority of the majority of the caucus, empowers that very right-leaning part of the Republican caucus to go do what they did, which was send up a whole ton of bills that had 16 votes and 31 votes, not a single Democrat on – a vast majority of the stuff that she ended up vetoing, which makes it easy for her to punt. Just say, nope, not doing this. We're not playing as a team here. We have to play as a team. So, you know, it was the direct byproduct of both of the extremism of parts of the Republican caucus and her unwillingness to not, you know, why should I go along? I don't. You don't have any Democratic votes. Stacey, this is something that the governor talked about quite a bit in terms of not wanting to necessarily sign bills that were not bipartisan, to Chuck's point, that only had Republican votes. Does that, do you think, continue? Like, is she going to continue to look for those kinds of bills? And maybe even if it's not like a quote unquote culture war bill coming to her with just Republican votes, is she still likely to veto bills that don't have votes from both parties? I think she has to. She's the governor of the state of Arizona that is still a Republican majority state. And as much as I wish it wasn't, and as much as we've made gains, if every single Democrat voted for the governor, every single Republican voted for the re- for the red candidate, she loses. Mm-hmm. So she has to take a look at the state's composition writ large from the libertarians in rural Arizona to the progressives in Tempe and everywhere in between and come up with policy that benefits everybody. I mean, that's the key. I mean, she has to veto it. Because her constituency is those Democratic caucus members. She is their voice. So in order for her 
to build a coalition, a successful coalition, it has to start with the minority caucus. And so – And she has to sort of be the backstop she, for those lawmakers. Backstop and the leader for them. So what do you want? How can I help you get what you want? And that, that can be a problem too because part of that Democratic caucus is the flip side, mirror side of that Republican caucus in terms of its progressive nature. So she needs to have an open dialogue with those people where there is a relationship that they can meld together because that becomes your leadership majority then. Stacey, how would you describe the governor's relationship with the legislature? I mean, was she sort of serving as the voice of the minority Democrats at the Capitol? I think she was serving as the voice for the Arizona voters that that elected her, particularly the crossover voters. And and I'd argue um, with Chuck about the mere side when we're talking about the most <laughs> radical progressives, they want to feed kids in elementary, all of them, every one of the kids in elementary school. That's not schools. the more radical thing <laughs> that I'm thinking about, but that's OK. <laughs> but I mean, we're, when, when we're really talking about the tinfoil hats, fake, ele- fake electors, folks that could very well be indicted here by Arizona's attorney general, the Democrats are remarkably sane by comparison. So. We talked a little bit about the budget, and there were two budget ideas in 2023. There was the so-called skinny budget that the legislature passed that the governor vetoed. Then there was the budget, the bipartisan budget that the governor signed, which, as you both alluded to, was basically the Oprah budget, right? Like everyone looks under your seat, you get a couple million dollars or more Mm -hmm. than a couple million dollars. That has led the state into a financial problem where deficit for the current fiscal year that we're about halfway through, projected deficit for the fiscal year starting on July 1st. So given, Chuck, that this is how the last budget was done, are we in for a really messy process in 2024? Yes. Uh, So, I mean, the options are going to look like uh, something like the 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 de- I would suggest that the Democrats uh, ought to start with what they did. So they 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 had two billion dollars in one time expenditures. A lot of those are maybe out the door, but not banked um, that haven't been spent. And so I'd start with a list of bringing a bunch of that stuff back mm. with my Democratic colleagues of things that we don't think are necessary to do, critical to do. Like Stacy just mentioned, like funding, you know, uh, K through 12, Title I schools, um, that that's going to be critical. And so how do we bring money back into the fold? That would be a starting point going forward because the Republicans are going to tee up. They're going to want to cut state shared revenue. So that's where they're going to want to go. Um, and they're going to want to cut other programs as well and cut spending. And so that's a beginning discussion down there. And then you're going to have to come up with better ways to do things. Um, How do we save money? You know, what can we do um, at the K through 12 level? That's a big part of the budget. How can we do that better? Um, What can we do with access and federal funds that we draw down? How can we be more efficient with that and come up with a plan to actually balance the state budget by doing practical things? Stacey, we talked a little bit about the governor's relationship with Democratic leaders. Is it fair to say that trying to craft the next state budget will really put her put to the test her relationship with the Senate president and the House Speaker? Absolutely. And in full disclosure, obviously, I worked with Chad for a very long time, yeah. but there's nobody better to do that. I mean, Chad, 
Chad helped negotiate Medicare, Medicaid expansion under yep. a Brewer administration. He just gets in there, rolls his sleeves up, works with staff, figures out the numbers, starts with a baseline set of facts that everyone agrees on, and he's the least party over policy person that could be in that position. He he really wants the state to be a better place. He's a much better human than I am. <laughs> he's yeah, he's the, a good the, guy. The difficulty with that is – uh, and I'm not saying this it, – it applies to everybody in this role is you have to remember to be humble when you're talking to legislative leaders because you want to go down and say the governor's for this, the governor's for this, this is what we're doing. And you, that creates antagonism out of the gate. And so as much as you really want to do that, it's probably not the best thing to do and it takes time. It takes time to build those types of relationships. That was Chuck Coughlin. I was also joined by Stacy Pearson. More of our Year in Review newscap in just a moment. Good morning. It's the Friday year-end Friday newscap on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. We're looking back at some of the biggest political stories in 2023 and what 2024 might have in store with Chuck Coughlin of High Ground and Stacey Pearson of Lumen Strategies. Let's continue the conversation, which was recorded earlier, with Arizona's closely watched U.S. Senate race. Two of the three expected participants announced their candidacies this year, Democrat Ruben Gallego and Republican Kerry Lake. Of course, the incumbent, independent Kirsten Cinema, has not announced whether or not she'll run for re-election. So I asked Stacey Pearson how she sees this race shaping up. This race is for the control of the United States Senate. Um, the one thing I can say is it's going to be the most expensive thing we've ever seen in Arizona. A lot of TV ads. Television's going to be unwatchable. <laughs> it, it really <laughs> is. It, it, people are going to be watching live sports on tape delay intentionally. Um, or just it, listen it, to public radio. Oh, that's a much better idea. <laughs> you're right. That is the much better idea. Because you're not going to be talking about it either. <laughs> no, no, no commercials. <laughs> no commercials. But you're looking at, you know, candidate Gallego, who was in one of the safest seats in the country, who was in um, support of the president almost exclusively. Um, and then we have Carrie Lake, who's totally insane. I mean, we really have a tinfoil hat wearer who is now trying, you know, trying to make up ground on an apology tour that doesn't appear to be going particularly well. So I really think the that it's anyone's ball game, And particularly if Senator Cinema gets in, she shouldn't be discounted. She continuously gets what she sets her mind to, if that's border policy, if it's immigration policy, if it's equality, uh, marriage equality, moments after the Supreme Court signaled that that was up for grabs again after Roe fell. I mean, she really is in there continuing to work hard for the state. Do you think she runs? Oh, I hope so. (laughs) I really do. I don't know. Chuck, do you think she runs? I don't know. I mean, I could make really logical arguments both ways as to why not and then why do it. The the why do it is she is one of the most intensely competitive people I've ever met. I mean, you can see that she has really remade her entire life in her adult life from the time I first met her down at the legislature yeah. to where she is today. I mean, it's an entirely different person who has learned how to compete and how to fight. And she's very good at it. Um, And does she allow herself, you know, to walk away from a fight? I don't know. I don't know. I could also say I could also say that she would be brilliantly employed 
by a host of interested parties who are interested in seeing the kind of things get done, which she's gotten done. If she decided not right. to Right. She mentioned – I mean Stacey mentioned the marriage equality issue. She had a gun control bill she got yep. done. So if she does run, she can come back and say, I am here – and Joe Biden's my president because we work together. I got things done. And she will have a very compelling message to share with Arizona voters. But then let's also remember that, uh, you know, there's a good there's a good 40 percent of Arizona voters who will never vote for her. And a lot of Democrats. And a, those are a lot of Demo- hardcore partisans. I mean, 40 percent of the electorate is a hardcore partisan base. And they're out. And so you're starting your campaign with 60 percent of the electorate that you can try and persuade. That's a hard place to be because everybody says, oh, well, you can get 60 percent of unaffiliated voters. Well, tell me something 60 – tell me something that unaffiliated voters agree with on 60 (laughs) percent. There's a reason they're independents. And so it's a very difficult campaign for her to run. I'm fascinated. I literally, as a May watcher, I'm fascinated by all of this stuff going on, including Lakes, uh, as she called it, you know, um, stitching the fence to her or, you know, (laughs) that's not going well. Um, She's she's had a hard time breaking away from her historical narrative that looks backwards at past Republican Party failures and looking forward. She's not really doing that very well. Ruben, on the other hand, is doing an extremely good job of jettisoning his longtime, highly partisan, very obsteperous, um, vocal partisan nature where he's not doing that anymore. He's not doing his – somebody took his phone away because he's not doing <laughs> Twitter anymore uh, as Ruben used to do it, which I think is brilliant. That's a good thing for him to do. But uh, – so it's a really fascinating – makeup of what could happen. But I suspect it's really difficult for Cinema to run this campaign. Well, and Stacey, if she does decide to run, what she's trying to do is kind of unprecedented, right? Like, clearly, we have third party candidates or independent candidates, but none of them have been sitting U.S. senators. Very true. And what's most fascinating about that, none of them have transitioned from Green Party to Democrat (laughs) to the first to write the playbook that now has two left-leaning, well, one Democrat, one independent herself, and a Democrat in the governor's office, what she did, her the way she put together that playbook that went straight through the Southeast Valley, that playbook now has been replicated numerous times. And she has those folks, and she continues to work with those folks and continues to deliver. Yeah, the 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 thing that people should think about when they think about this race, and most people do not think about this because they think, oh, you need fifty percent plus one to win. Thirty three point four percent of the electorate could conceivably de- be declared a winner in this race if it's that tight. Um, and so that's all you need. You need thirty three and a third, thirty three point four, and you're a winner. I mean, and so Carrie, Le- that's in Carrie Lake's grasp. That that's within her realm of getting that base of support. It's in within the realm of Ruben getting clearly that base of support. It's going to be a struggle for her to get into the uh, for uh, for cinema cinema to get into the mid thirties. You know, we've said all along that 
you know, 40 percent's a winner here. Anybody gets 40 percent of the electorate done. So you got to think about the entire electorate very differently and who's going to be voting for whom. Right. Chuck, we also saw this year uh, Congresswoman Debbie Lesko call it quits, saying that she was done. She basically said nothing can happen in Congress. Like it's not fun. It's like it's not productive. I'm I'm out. That sets up a really interesting primary. This is a very safe Republican district in in the West Valley that she has, and it's setting up a really interesting primary with a lot of potential. Uh, candidates in there. We have people like uh, Abe Hamaday, who won uh, former President Trump's endorsement. We have uh, Blake Masters, uh, who previously had won President Trump's endorsement when he uh, ran for U.S. Senate. We have uh, Ben Toma, who's the current House Speaker. We have Anthony Kern, who's very uh, big in, in the MAGA world. I'm curious. Oh, you how- forgot the shaman. Don't forget the shaman. He's an independent. He, he's not running. Oh, yeah. right. He's that's separate. Okay. Yes, right. but that's, separate. Yes, yeah. but. Um, There's I'm a curious. carnival going on over there. <laughs> well, it's a lot of candidates. and a lot. Yeah. It seems like a lot of candidates who can really sort of stake their claim to a, a, a real constituency there. Yeah. So, you know, the Dick Nixon rule of Republican primary, the guy to the furthest of the right wins the Republican primary. So there's going to be a battle there to do that. I'm I'm saying Mr. Hamada is the leader in the clubhouse right now okay. by virtue of uh, his endorsement from Kerry Lake and his subsequent endorsement by the former president. So it's the, all the spotlight's going to be on him. It's going to be about him, and so he's going to have to navigate a campaign to hold on to that that spotlight. So Masters is going to challenge that. I, I would say that the last time Lesko won. The leader uh, in the first race that she ever had, the leader in the clubhouse at the time was Steve Montenegro, mm-hmm. who is a pastor, um, a legislator, very articulate. And boom, that fell apart as it went through the cycle. And Debbie, by virtue of her legislative experience and her endorsement by then Governor Brewer um, and Others succeeded in shaping that environment. So Lesko's endorsed Toma. Um, Governor Brewer has endorsed Toma. And Governor Brewer is from that part of the valley. She lives in the hood. Yeah, that's her that's her that's her neck of the woods out there. And so she's very popular. And so it'll be interesting to see if Ben can Ben Toma. Ben Toma can actually articulate um that and run a successful campaign while being the House Speaker, because that's going to be a car wreck going on down at the Capitol, and he's going to be driving run of the cars. And so you're like, okay, how's that going to work? And so, man, it's a fascinating thing. Masters will have money, but I think it's between those three guys. And uh, we'll see how it all shakes out. Stacey, let me ask you about another uh, competitive primary on the Democratic side that we've seen a number of candidates come out for in 2023. That is in uh, the first district, currently held by Republican David Schweikert, who is seen as vulnerable, but has been seen as vulnerable for several cycles now. Much like with CD8 in the West Valley on the Republican side, it seems like there are a lot of candidates who really can sort of stake their claim as being legitimate candidates with a particular constituency here. Of course. And you're talking about a number of medical professionals, right? You've got you've got a Mayo Clinic doctor, an emergency room surgeon. You have an orthodontist. And then you have Marlene Woods, who is extraordinary, uh, who has has 
uh, lost her husband, Grant Woods, former attorney general, whose political position evolved over time, uh, certainly was a very vocal critic of some of, of Trump and some of the hardest um, right wingers, the tinfoil hat coalition. Um, and Marlene is just fantastic. She understands the issues. And so you've got one woman in a sea of men out there. And that is a distinct advantage. It's the Debbie Lesko effect on the left mm-hmm. when there's five guys that all have similar histories and approaches. And there's one woman. The woman has a distinct advantage. And so I think she is a I think she is the one to watch out there. Yeah, there's um, there's Conor O'Callaghan, who's a very yeah. successful businessman, grew up in the district, uh, was a very successful New York a financial guy. He's throwing his money into the ring now. I don't know how much money he's got. Uh, lifelong Democrat. Um, Marlene, full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of Marlene, having worked for Grant in my life and loved Grant. Um, and so I'm with her on all that. But the challenge there being former Republican. Right. I totally with you on the only woman and she's great on camera. That's a competitive race. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a very Andre Cherney is also a candidate, former candidate for Congress when Kirsten Cinema first uh, first ran as well. Yeah, exactly. And so finished it, third though in that true. race. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know he's got a credible resume as a policy expert on the left. He's got Terry Goddard's support. He's got sort of that partisan um, Democratic base of support out there. So I mean, again. Back to your beginning intro segment here, bust out the popcorn because this is going to be a fascinating political year for Arizonans to watch. That was Chuck Coughlin. I was also joined by Stacey Pearson. More of our year in review newscap in just a moment. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, how a Sonoran Desert skeptic fell in love with Arizona. But first, we continue our year-end Friday newscast. We've been talking about some of the biggest political stories in Arizona this year and looking ahead to what may be in store in the new year. I was joined in studio earlier by Stacey Pearson of Lumen Strategies and Chuck Coughlin of High Ground. And the theme of looking back while looking ahead was a big one in 2023. There are still pending lawsuits related to the 2022 election, while some candidates continue to talk about 2020. And late this year, two Cochise County supervisors were indicted for their role in certifying the 2022 election. So I asked Coughlin, as we're looking ahead to the 2024 elections, how much are we still going to be looking back at 2022 and even 2020? Well, I think let, let's remember what Cochise County is. It, you know, behind Mojave County, it's one of the most Republican counties in the state. Yeah. Um, and so let's remember that because you, that's still going to be happening. You're still going to uh, d- deal with some of these rural Arizona constituencies that they're not looking forward, brother. They were happy in 20, uh, 20 when President Trump was there and they want him back. And so it creates this very intense amount of political pressure in some of these communities to act in ways that maybe aren't the wisest. So it's it's clear that there is that constituency. But, you know, the rest of the state, you know, 60 percent of the electorate is here in Maricopa County. Right. And we're looking forward. I mean, I think people are tired of looking backward. I think that's what um, Kerry Lake's been told by the National Republican Senatorial Committee, you have to look forward. And so you have to figure out what the narrative is moving forward and how to ride that wave going forward. And 
I, I, I just think with Trump on the ballot, that's going to be a really difficult thing for Republicans to narrate talking about all of this stuff that he wants to look backward on and revenge politics and all that. So tough year for Republicans, I think. Well, so, Stacey, we keep hearing about how so many voters don't want a rematch of 2020, right? They don't want Trump versus Biden. But I wonder if it even extends beyond that, because it's not just seemingly anyway, those two candidates who will be the nominees. But it seems like we're going to be talking about almost the same issues in 2024 as we talked about in 2020. Oh, it's terrifying, right? (laughs) With the exception of the fact that Roe has fallen. I mean, that is the difference. The difference is my daughter, who is 21 years old, has fewer rights when she goes to an OB's office than I did. And that is a huge difference for a voting block that outperforms men. I mean, we're talking, you know, 54, 46 in total returns in the general. And it's not a threat anymore. It has fallen since the last time we voted for a president. And in Arizona, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of new voters that moved during the Mm -hmm. pandemic, moved shortly after. They and we know exactly where they came from. You can check the U.S. Postal Service. You can check the census. They came from California. They came from Portland. They came from Seattle. They came from the Rust Belt. And they've intentionally registered in Arizona as independents. And those folks are going to be the wild card when we've got races this close. Those are those are my parents. That, that's my mom, who lifelong Democrat, um, extraordinarily worried, worried about border security right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 these folks that are are just a bit um, shell shocked from the place they came. Maybe the property taxes were too high in Chicago. They were worried about the infrastructure. Maybe Southern California. These are literally my neighbors who were afraid to go to the beach with their kids mm. because the homeless population had grown to a place that was terrifying to them. Yeah, let me get a shameless plug in for another thing that will be on the ballot, which is <laughs> open primary. I'm surprised it took you this uh, long to get that in, Chuck. So that, that'll be on the ballot. I think that's a persuasive thing, maybe not as powerful as uh, a woman's reproductive rights, but it certainly will be on the ballot and it'll see, be there as a energizing base to those voters that want change. So I'm good with that. And and I've seen all these polls, right, all these polls that say Biden's behind Trump right now, which I get because nobody wants the rematch. When the cards are dealt, though, and the cards I believe are going to get dealt, that that's the matchup, I just have a really hard time. The economy is going to be better. We're going to be starting to talk about interest rate cuts. This Mm -hmm. is this spring. Mm Mm-hmm. Hopefully we'll have some – we'll have an immigration reform package that will abide or, you know, abet some of this disaster that's going on the border. You'll have a Ukrainian funding package. You'll have an Israeli funding package and it will look better for Biden at that point in time. And when the electorate doesn't have an option C left, I have not witnessed – this is my Arizona analysis. I have not witnessed unaffiliated voters – which will be 28% of the electorate in the next cycle, support a MAGA candidate for the general elect- on a general election ballot after 2016. I don't see why they would go back now and say, OK, I want that guy. The only thing I fear, you know, I, I, I'm cognizant of, and I think Trump's probably banking on this, is a lower voter turnout. So, Stacey, looking ahead to 2024, I'm curious from your perspective, who will be the most impactful person in Arizona politics in the new year? Ooh, that's a great question. 
hell hath no fury like suburban moms whose vacation got ruined by this <laughs> Lukeville closing, right? Um, they're mad. So assuming Senator Cinema and Governor Hobbs get the border opened and keep it open, those two are going to be the most um, impactful. And and border security got real again in Arizona in a way that we've largely dismissed. We've been we've we've always been used as a pawn in the border security waves of migrants. This is terrible. But Arizona, both from the business community and and just your layperson, um, understands the role immigrants have in our state and the the critical role they play in our agriculture and our home building and our economy and all of these things. Lukeville, what happened there woke Arizona back up to the mm. crisis that we're having with immigration. It's no longer, hey, let in the guy that's going to pick the lettuce because nobody else is going to do that job anyway. It is, wait, what? They're, they're where? They're how many? And mm-hmm. at what time? And where's the bus headed? Um, it certainly changed the water cooler conversation about immigration. And we look at Texas and the package of bills that Abbott recently signed, mm-hmm. and those are 1070 all over again. I mean, all bad ideas come back around, and I think those the, the in terms of who's going to be most important in the Republicans, it's whether or not the Republicans try to put an immigration measure to counterbalance abortion if they try to refer something out, and that that would be my expectation. You could probably make the argument, though, take immigration out of it, that Senator Sinema will be the most impactful person anyway, just by virtue of her needing to decide if she's running for Senate or not. Absolutely. Yeah. And and regardless of what she decides to do, she remains the key vote in the Senate in an election year when the Democrats have no majority and need to get stuff done. Chuck, who do you think is going to be the most politically impactful person? I, I can't state? argue with cinema. I think it's it, all the chips are down on that. What are you going to do? You know, how does that play out? Um, it has such a consequential narrative potential not only in the dynamics of the Senate race, but in the larger narrative of what happens. Because if she chooses not to, if she chooses to pass, people are going to be saying, well, how do we get things done? You got all these things done. Her, you know, Stacy's point recently uh, that she just made about Lukeville. I was talking to a national reporter the other day. And, you know, they don't know. They're like, so the border shut down. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. A majority of people in in Maricopa County know people who have homes and property and businesses in Rocky Point. And you're like, no, this is a huge deal because it is a flagrant flag on the failure of the administration to keep the border open and functional. It is a damning uh, statement to everybody in Maricopa County of the failure of this administration to fix the border. Well, so how important then is it for President Biden's reelection chances, at least in Arizona, yeah. that this situation get resolved pretty quickly? Hugely. I mean, I cannot overstate how important this is. And I think the irony of ironies on all this is to watch the House Freedom Caucus, if they come up with a compromise that gets 60 votes in the Senate— where does the House Freedom Caucus go? I'm going to presume it's pure politics all the time. They're going to walk. They're going to say it's not a good enough deal. So it's going to left the other, you know, part of the Republican caucus to pass a bill with the Democrats in the House, which they've got problems, too, because this is a significantly 
change, significant change in policy direction there for those progressives that aren't, you know, they want to have this very heartfelt immigration um, asylum policy that respects all human rights. And you're like, eh, you're going to you're going to break the bank if you insist on doing that. So it's a really important vote for Congressman Gallego. Right. Where does he fall down? Because previously, former version of Mr. Gallego would not have been supporting such a compromise. The new version may well have to support the compromise. Stacey, is Lukeville enough to potentially cost Biden Arizona? If he was running against anyone but the guy who cannot get the nuclear codes back, he just can't. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, this is going to be the atomic bomb ad, right? If if we had if Nikki Haley gets out of the Republican primary, then perhaps Lukeville could cost Biden Arizona. If it's Trump. Ultimately, it's kind of come down to you think one port of entry being closed was problematic. This guy wants to close the whole country like he wants to build a wall mm-hmm. that's bigger and stronger than we've seen. You so know, it, it, it's interesting. Um, I think I'm I'm I want to be on her page. I definitely <laughs> want to be on her page in believing that. But I think there is a giant portion of the electorate that is absolutely beyond frustrated with this administration over inflation, a variety of issues, food's up, gas has been up. Um, They're unhappy with the border situation. They're unhappy with the cultural wokeness of the left. There is a lot of, of anger out there to see if he can drive more voters to the polls. I mean, look at Turning Point here in the state here. Turning point is turning out and identifying people who are traditional non-voters and turning them into political activists. They're turning that portion of the electorate out that is just angry and angry sells. So I want to believe that, but I'm absolutely gut-wrenched over the prospects of what this election could look like. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Lots more to come, of course. Stacey Pearson, Chuck Hoffman, thank you both so much for coming in. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. Happy, happy uh, holidays. Happy New Year. We'll, we'll continue this discussion, I'm confident. Absolutely. <laughs> Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Here at the show, we've spent the last year exploring the Sonoran Desert. In our final season, Winter, we're sharing a collection of essays about life here in what we've dubbed Saguaro Land. Here's local writer Noan Dublinsky on her surprising relationship with the desert. Several years ago, I received an email. The subject line read, Tapestry Research. Your DNA insights are ready. It had been months since I'd agreed to participate in the study, and honestly, I'd forgotten all about it. I clicked open the email and read, Go build a snowman. You have a specific genotype associated with a cold climate adaptation. In other words, I'm genetically suited to live in colder climates. I'd never felt so validated in my entire life. Throughout the 30-plus years I've lived here in the Sonoran Desert, I've often had reason to say to my husband, wow, it's hot out. To which my husband would reply, it's not hot. To which I would reply, well, I feel hot. 
I grew up in the Midwest, and after graduating college, moved to Arizona for a job, never planning to make my permanent home here. But as the story goes, I met and fell in love with a boy, a boy who loves the Sonoran Desert. We married, and I happily agreed to make my home and raise our daughters here in Arizona. But I never stopped missing, missing the seasons of the Midwest, and I struggled to acclimate to the desert heat. I always told myself, when we retire, we can relocate to a cooler climate. I am from Irish peasant stock, I would remind my husband. I'm not meant to be traipsing across caliche soil, dodging jumping choyas. I'm meant to be wandering upon misty moors. <laughs> then finally, a year and a half ago, I retired, and the oddest thing happened. I found myself reluctant to leave my desert home. While I'd spent years focusing on the parts of desert living I found challenging, I'd failed to acknowledge all the things about the Sonoran Desert I'd grown to love. Watching the monarch butterflies flock to our milkweed in the fall, listening to the great horned owls hooting as courting season began each winter. The explosion of color when the wildflowers bloom each spring, and the intoxicating scent of creosote after the summer monsoons. Initially, I struggled to reconcile this love for my desert home with my visceral need for snowfall and frigid wind gusts. Then I realized, I'm retired now. Why can't I have both? I could visit friends and family living in snowy climates, and we could welcome these same loved ones to spend time with us here in the Sonoran Desert. So since my retirement, that is exactly what my husband and I have been doing. Recently, my niece came to visit. We went kayaking on the Salt River. We hiked in the McDowell Sonoran Preserve. We sipped margaritas in the jacuzzi. And on the morning of her departure, she looked up at the pink and orange sunrise splayed across the desert sky and said, so you just look at that every day. Wow, she said, I would love to live here. That was known to Blinsky. You can hear essays, see artwork, and experience the rest of the Suaraland series at kjzz.org. As 2023 comes to a close, we're remembering several Arizonans you may never have heard of who passed away this year. Today, on our final episode of the show for the year, we'll hear about Anne Gale. The co-founder of the interior design firm Wiseman & Gale was a style icon, and as her colleague Scott Burdick explains, she really had the flair. When I was in high school in the 80s, my mom went back to school to pursue her design degree and the dean of the school asked her where she wanted to work and and my mom said uh, absolutely i would like to work at wiseman and gale and saw in her what ann calls the flair and it's something that is a big part of who she was is she she was monumentally competent in her creative abilities <laughs> and was uber creative 
sort of genius level residential interior designer, creative in everything, creative in writing, creative in fashion, creative in design. She just was generally a creative person. She grew up in Kansas and moved to Santa Fe in the 60s and didn't stay long in Santa Fe. She um, married her husband, Tom Gale, in the early 60s, and he's an architect. He was an architect. He passed away probably eight years ago. I don't think they loved Santa Fe. I think that it wasn't big enough for them. And so they moved to Phoenix in the 60s. She had many different homes in Phoenix. And then she had kind of a historical property in Jerome. It's called the Powder Box Church. And that was a passion project of hers and a, a family place for them to have weddings and, and, and getaways. And then they had a house in, in Flagstaff. In her retirement years, she would kind of, she'd spend the winter months, the, the nice months in Phoenix, and then she would go up to Flagstaff. When she passed away, it was unexpected. I mean, she was 88 and we knew that she was having some health issues, but we didn't know how dire they were. I was actually with her the week before she died. She was in Flagstaff and she called me up and said, you got to come up here for the day and meet this woman. And he, it was a woman that was her balance trainer who she felt had the flair and she wanted me to meet her. And, and so we spent, I, the last thing in the world I wanted to do, um, it was, I was, I was crazy busy and you just can't say no to her. And so she's like, give me a date. I'll set it up. And she asked me 10 times before I finally gave her a date and drove up there. And I'm so happy I did spent a lovely day with her and this um, woman named Elizabeth who has the flair. She's absolutely right. It's a design saying, but it's also very much Angel. It's somebody who innately knows about interior design. Like I remember a joke on, on Cheers where Norm joked that he um, naturally always knew where the ottoman was supposed to go. And that's the flair. Anne always started designing from fabric. So it's very different than most interior designers. She taught our whole team how to do that. You start playing with fabrics and combinations of fabrics until something feels right. Then you add the furniture. Then you add the rugs and things like that. And then at the end, you accessorize it. There is a undescribable thing that is when you know a room is done and it's as good as it's going to get and it is different than anything you've ever seen before and it's it's fabulous and she taught us how, what that is and to this day we look at our work and we say what would Ann think that was Scott Burdick, managing partner at Wiseman and Gale, remembering his friend and colleague Anne Gale. You can listen to this and more of our In Memory series at KJZZ.org.
That'll do it for this Friday edition of the show. Does it for 2023 on the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. The show is produced by Sativa Peterson, Nick Sanchez, Amber Victoria Singer, Nate Boyle, and Ian McKinney, as well as Bruce Drummond, of course. Sky Shout is our digital editor. Chad Snow is our news director. The show was created by John Hoban. Our executive producer is Amy Silverman. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Thank you, of course, for listening today and throughout the year. Have a very happy and safe New Year. Hope to have you right back here in 2024. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.